Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hi, Michael. Great to have you here. Great to have you as well. Thanks for having me, Sam. So guys, thanks for being here and following us one, one more week. Uh, we're very, very happy to receive Michael Proman this week. How do we pronounce it, actually? It's Proman. I mean, it's, I feel like there's a French company named Proman, by the way. I think they were a partner of the Women's World Cup, and everyone started telling me, God, are you French? What's your, you know, what's your, your country of origin? Actually, I think it used to be, just for genealogy purposes, uh, it was Promansky. At one point, my father's uh, side of the family immigrated, I think, from Eastern Europe, Russia area. And then when we got to the U.S., it, it just, the ski dropped off and it's just pro-man. So there you go. Made it easier, made it nice and American sounding. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, you know, it's a lot nicer to say you're an American these days than maybe three weeks ago. So <laughs> I can't agree more. Being half American, living abroad, it is much easier. <laughs> But yeah, great. We're, we're very happy to have you. Most of our uh, podcasts have been in French for the moment, so we're launching our new international version. Uh, so very excited to have you here as one of the first members. But if you can't introduce yourself to those out there who might not know you yet, we'd love to just give you, if you could give, your, give a little bit of background, we'd love for everybody to know about it. Sure. So, um, yeah, I guess been in, in the sports entertainment startup venture side for the last call it 20 years, uh, started my career uh, at, at big organizations, Coca-Cola, the, the first starting point, uh, working in their global sports and entertainment group uh, on properties like FIFA World Cup, uh, the NBA on the international side, and of course, the Olympics and Olympic torch relay, just an invaluable um, experience um, working with some of the best and brightest uh, in the world as far as global marketers. Um, specifically around the Athens 2004 Olympics and, and some of their buildup efforts around Beijing as well. Uh, and then from there, I, I transitioned over to the property side, worked for the National Basketball Association, uh, helping build their global brand uh, and, and business operations, particularly in Asia and in, in China more local. Um, you know, I think when I got to the league in, in you know, late 2004, we had about uh, two or three people on the ground in China. Um, when I left in uh, late 2008, uh, we had just spun off NBA China, and I, I think the team at that point was up to 125 or so. So just explosive growth um, over that four-plus-year period. Um, and then from there, I decided, you know what, I, I've always kind of been semi-creative uh, and, and somewhat entrepreneurial, and, and I had an opportunity to help start a company um, in kind of an adjacency to sport, right? Sport plus something else. And that company was called Option It. Um, so we essentially utilized some, some intellectual property um, to make options uh, more ubiquitous, right? Uh, more relevant to consumer-driven goods and services, uh, and in particular, sports and sports entertainment tickets. Uh, and so we scaled that business over a two to two and a half year period, ended up exiting that business in 2011, worked with a few other uh, companies in the startup space uh, over that period of time. And then about two, two and a half years ago, I got a phone call from the folks at Scrum Ventures, uh, which is a, a small 
uh, venture capital firm in, in, uh, based in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, um, looking to do more in the sports and entertainment space. And, and it's been a really good fit for me there. Uh, what I really appreciate is that, you know, it's, it's a tech agnostic organization, as you know. Um, and so it's more than just sport. And I think as I think about, you know, what is the future of not just sport and entertainment, but just in general, um, I think it has to involve diverse revenue streams. It has to look outside of this vertical for innovation sometimes. And I love the fact that we're investing in companies that are solving problems that, you know, transcend sport uh, and, and just really uh, thrilled to, to be part of that team. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, not only focusing on sport. And I think we'll get back to it um, because uh, the sports tech industry is one that's very crowded and the sports industry is a hard industry. Uh, so I'll be happy to touch base on that a bit later. But as I was preparing our, our podcast and, 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 you know, going through your background, it feels like the typical resume that you would present at a business school as the success path. So what are you hiding? Like, uh, I love to say that in my personal entrepreneurial uh, journey, failing at the beginning of it was super rich for me. Um, so, you know, what are you hiding? Yeah, no, I, I, you can't we, give up without success. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, there have been many more failures than, than uh, positive outcomes. And I think that is many respects, how you figure out where you want to be and, and, and how to kind of work through adversity. Um, yeah, I think a few things, right. I mean, you need to, to kind of understand that everything's about timing, right. And it's not necessarily about having the right idea. It's about having the right idea at the right time. And in many respects, I've, I've kind of gone through that process, um, both on the startup side and, and in, even in my, you know, more defined corporate roles I've had, um, where it just wasn't the right time, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, more specifically, right. I mean, look at, look at remote work. I, I've been doing this now essentially for 12 years. I've been on an Island. Um, it's been very challenging. I think in those early years, um, you got a visitor there. That's awesome. Uh, to be able to, um, really validate the type of, uh, you know, results you're able to achieve when you're not there physically with other people. And, and so I think it, it's small examples like that, right? Where it, you're looking at it and saying, uh, if I could go back to 2011 or 2012, 13, and, you know, for me to get on the phone and use this as a launching pad and be traveling and doing all these things, um, there's a lot of wasted time, right? Uh, and it was a lot of time me trying to convince other people that, you know, this type of lifestyle of Zoom conversations, <laughs> Um, kind of fly in, fly out was valuable. Um, and, and, and that was, it was a struggle, right? It was one step forward, two steps back and, you know, or vice versa. I think, you know, what's been really enjoyable for me is that I've been able to see things from multiple kind of perspectives, right? So whether it's be on, on the sponsor side, whether it be on the property side, whether it be on the startup side, right? Um, I've tried to apply those learnings, those lessons into how I both manage and how I look for opportunities um, as it relates to venture. Um, you know, I think having that diverse perspective is, is really one of those takeaways for me that um, I'm just starting to reap the rewards of. Uh, and so when you ask the question of kind of where have you failed, it's, it's in some cases because of timing, in some cases because I didn't have that kind of more macro level picture. Um, and I feel that being able to kind of sit in, in different stools, so to speak, um, has provided a lot of those. And 
the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to fail. There's no question about it, but at least I'm going to do so in probably a much more uh, structured way um, versus these impulsive uh, kind of decisions. Very efficiently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that's interesting because I, I also believe that you're going to be based out actually out of Asia because most of your activities are, are you know, in focus. So would love also just because I need to understand a bit better. So I, I believe our audiences, what's, um, you know, what is Trump Ventures? What is Smart City X? What is Sports Tech Tokyo? Like, can you help us understand yeah. how all of that coexists and how, it, how yeah. It, it, it's uh it's not an easy way. I mean, there's not the elevator speech here, so to speak, right? <laughs> um, when, when, it, when it comes to it, because, I, and I love that, right? Is that it's not because I like hearing my own voice or talking a lot. Um, it's, there's a lot going on here. And, and we're, we're kind of redefining or reinventing the way VCs operate and their relationships with LPs. We're looking at kind of the inefficiencies in the startup space in particular, right? And so here's how this kind of all works itself out. And you tell me, you know, is he talking in circles or is this actually make sense? But um, we do what VCs do, right? That's our primary and core business. We have three funds. We've made 80 plus investments. We're, you know, tech uh, investors, but I would say tech uh, agnostically. So we have D2C, we have B2B companies, um, uh, you name it, right? Um, we're co-investors, right? So we're not leading rounds, but everything I just mentioned right there, to be honest, there are thousands of VCs that can claim to do exactly what we do, right? Um, and so on its face, it doesn't seem that special. But I think the, the secret sauce, if you want to call it that, and kind of the, the genesis for something bigger, and, and I can get into it in a second, is our LP base, right? Our LPs, um, for the most part, are large Japanese corporations. And that's really unique, right? Typically, it's family offices or, you know, maybe fund to fund or this or that. But in our case, um, these are defined brands, brands that everybody knows. Okay. So they invest into our funds just like any LP would. Now, the difference is um, we're also working with them in a more day-to-day capacity. I think one of the things that our founder kind of first recognized, and I give him a lot of credit, Takmiata is that, you know, anytime you're investing seed to A, which is kind of our sweet spot, right? Um, that's a really long-term conversation with your LPs, right? It's like, hey, I'll give you a call in five to 10 years when, you know, there's certain liquidity events that we can chat about. Um, and honestly, that's not a very healthy relationship, uh, as you can probably appreciate. Um, I think what we realized early on is that we can be more than just venture investors. We have the network, we have the expertise, whether it be vertically or just more um, kind of broad-based, to add value. And in many respects, we're changing the LPVC relationship, I think, to what it should look like. It should be more of a partnership and one in which we can add value at the business level on a more day-to-day level component, just as much as we can more strategically um, on the investment side. And so all of that in mind, about three years ago, we started what is now called Scrum Studios International. So separate entity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, subsidiary of Scrum. And everyone's first reaction was, oh, this is just an accelerator. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, you might call it a side hustle to the, the, the kind of primary business, right? Um, and it's much more than a side hustle today, by the way. 
Uh, but it's, it's, it is a community and it's vertically focused, right? So rather than you think accelerator, you think probably pre-revenue, early seed stage company, you know, maybe six, 10, 12 companies in a particular cohort, um, willing to give up equity to participate, willing to relocate, willing to kind of reprioritize, drop everything for a set period of time and be fully immersed, right? In this little bubble. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. That's called an accelerator. Um, but what we're doing is not an accelerator um, in that context, right? Our belief is this, is that you can have, you know, the, the, the two indicators to me of, of strong kind of growth and potential um, are revenue and relationships. And those transcend stages, geographies, areas of focus, right? So if you take equity off the table, you take relocation off the table, you make these programs very targeted on the value add, right? We always tell people we want to be an arrow in your quiver. We don't want to be the quiver itself, right? And being very respectful and thoughtful of their primary businesses, because in many times they're going to say to me, Michael, like this is priority number 28. And I'm like, phenomenal. I'm okay being number 28. I don't want to be number 29 or 30, but 28 is good, you know, like, and, and so the reality is, I think it's just a fundamentally different way of looking at things. Um, and, and the value is this, is Japan in particular, Asia more generally, right, is an extremely difficult market, particularly for startups in the US um, and for Europe and in other areas of the world to break into. It's very relationship centric. Um, sales cycles are long. And, you know, it's a long, long-term conversation for a lot of folks. And so if we can help create a gateway for the startup community into that market, growth market, right, through our network, our relationships, that's a win for the startups. And if you can do it again in a virtual way that is value-oriented, it's targeted, we're not trying to provide the blocking and tackling of, you know, startup 101. If you want that, go to an accelerator. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is we can create communities that are vertically driven, right? So gaming, electronics, sports and entertainment, food tech, and now smart city. Um, and these aren't 10 or 12 companies. These are hundreds of companies, right? In the case of Sports Tech Tokyo, it was 159 startups from 33 countries. Smart City X, which is one of our latest initiatives, will probably be about 100 startups and it'll probably be just as diverse on a global level, right? So it's about looking for the best and brightest. It's about looking at companies that, again, wouldn't fit the spec of an accelerator, but understand the value we provide. Mm -hmm. And also saying to ourselves, how can we add value just to the general kind of ecosystem, right? Um, whether it be uh, municipalities in the case of Smart City, whether it be corporations, people who have a vested interest in this, and those are our leadership circle or what we kind of refer to in some respect as a mentor community that runs kind of adjacent to our partners. So it's a really, um, an enormous undertaking. We have a really talented team. In fact, probably the majority of our team sits on the studio side of our business, not on the venture side. But I, I like to say we're all athletes, we're all generalists, we're very cross-functional extremely collaborative. We have a massive team in, in the Bay Area. We have a great team in Tokyo. I sit on kind of an island, so to speak, um, in, in Minnesota, um, which these days is not where you want to be. Um, but, uh, but the reality is 
um, we found ways to make things work. And, and I'd like to say that we were kind of out in, in front of the curve on, on understanding kind of what different audiences are looking for and what they need. It's funny that you say that because um, it feels like you built that to get back to the hustle part, like being more proactive, more skin in the game, because that's actually the thing behind each entrepreneur, right? Like you have like having a little skin in the game and you miss the adrenaline of not having that that much. And that comes with the day-to-day -day pushing where you know that you're going to hit walls, but whenever there's a victory, then there's that adrenaline that keeps coming back. Um, and it's funny because it's, um, it's somehow a little bit what we're trying to do at Let's Horse. It's, um, you know, pick quality and then push it. And, you know, like, because we like the hustle side of it too, and yep. it's not only about, you know, trying to get money or seeing a business that, you know, by renting a building, you actually rent some office space at the same time that you kind of invest, but get, try to get your money back. No, it's like literally the hustle and try to uh, genuinely make it work. So, so I like that, that part of things. And so it makes a lot of sense in terms of why you also built sports tech Tokyo, right? Put this community together and actually, do more than just like invest, put a little bit of money and pass a couple of phone calls. It was actually helping out more extensively, more of those organizations. And I believe that uh, you guys must have had an interest at the Scrum Ventures level to cherry pick at some point, which ones were the best ones to keep pushing more extensively, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you talk about kind of rolling up the sleeves and thinking like an entrepreneur or even a founder, that's really the way we operate. I mean, like, I'm not trying to put on a facade here in my hoodie, but like the reality is this is how I, I act day in and day out. Okay. Um, you know, I, I look at it and say, Hey, we need to kind of be part of that team. And I think when you look at scrum, right. Or you look at VC in general, traditionally between, you know, sourcing, screening, supporting, right. The three S's of venture. Yeah. Very cliche. Now, your average VC, especially one that's a co-investor and doesn't take board seats and lead rounds, is probably going to look at that and say it's 40-40-20 in terms of time allocation yeah. and, and how we spend. You see, at Scrum, this is, again, goes inherent in our DNA. Um, I would position us as more like 40-10-50, right? So we cast a wide net. We, we look at different verticals, different industries, um, different problems, so to speak, Right. We're very particular about where we're kind of extracting kind of that diligence phase or kind of the screening. But then the, the reality is, and you can talk to any one of our portfolio companies, we probably, we don't even probably, we definitely punch above our weight as far as check size when it comes to support. And support isn't like, you know, let's just, you know, lob a, an introduction in here or there. It's how can we really be more hands-on with the portfolio and see ourselves as an extension of their existing management team in some respect, but doing it in, in, a, in a very non-threatening, non-micromanagement type of way, right? Always about value add. And that's the same mindset, right? That we take over the studio side. People ask me all the time, whether it's Sports Tech Tokyo, whether it's Smart City X, it's like, Michael, what the hell's in it for you? I mean, you're not taking equity, right? Yeah. You're, you're not taking a cut of revenue that these startups are, you know, able to extract through these, these commercial relationships they're establishing in Japan. I, I, I mean, it almost seems kind of bizarre, right? Is it altruism or, or kind of what, what, what's your thing? And, and you know, we, we look back and we say this, we're, we're very fortunate, of course, to have 
um, such strong partners in Japan that have made commitments to this program and enable these programs to exist, right? Um, but the, the, the broader mission is to be the epicenter of that community, right? To be able to be like that match.com algorithm that's connecting various audiences and us sitting in the middle of that. Um, we get to meet some outstanding companies through these large scale programs that we build. Oftentimes we then kind of export the conversation over to the investment side, so to speak, and participate in future rounds. So it becomes deal flow, it becomes pipeline, it becomes all the things that you look for from a venture firm, but we're kind of developing it more in house, if that makes sense. Um, and I think, you know, that's an interesting mix, but I'll go back to Sports Tech Tokyo. So that program, the initial year, and, and we're very fortunate to be working with Dentsu in that, you know, of course, and, and SoftBank and, and CBC and Microsoft, Totochu, you name it, right? Um, there were 159 companies. And I have to say in the last probably 60 days, I've probably been in communication with over 50% of them in some capacity. Yeah. And 99% of the time we have zero equity interest in those companies. So just to me, it's much more about a network. It's about saying, Hey, listen, we're going to raise our hand. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to make introductions where we can, we're going to provide support. Um, and, and that transcends the duration of a program, right? Yeah. Um, our belief is that these relationships are perpetual um, the relationships never end. Uh, and you know, everything comes back as you can probably appreciate in life. Um, you know, and, and so we want to kind of be on the, the right side of those conversations and, and we always want to try to do the right thing. That's funny because it, it really doesn't sound like a VC approach, uh, say for the bigger picture, but I do, I do genuinely believe that, um, you know, like it's not about the immediate win. It's about how you create the bigger, longer picture that mm -hmm. will guarantee success for five, 10, 15, 20 years. And that's, I think a good, uh, you know, we have obviously a lot of startups who listen to our, our podcast. And I think that that's a great takeaway um, is that, you know, operate fast on the low level stuff, but for the long-term picture, don't, don't make the wrong short-term decisions that will just, be super counterproductive for your business in the long run, right? Totally. I mean, I, I think you look at, you know, what has been seen as kind of a traditional VC startup relationship and how that whole thing works. I mean, the biggest pain points, I think, in, if you look at kind of like VCs, just very traditional VCs, they'll always say, you know, their, their differentiator is, is deal flow or their ability to source the right companies. Um, and I don't doubt that. I mean, I think everybody has really strong networks and, and are able to identify uh, some really valuable companies. Mm -hmm. But to me, the, the biggest difference is anybody can write a check. Let's just be honest. Capital, very commoditized these days. Um, and, and I think if you're a startup, that's a good thing, right? You, you need funding sources. There's no the question. US, to be fair, and I'll get back to it, but in the US, it's very true. Yeah, right. And, and so... The, the reality is everyone's like, oh, you need to take strategic money or this or that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think there is something there. The future kind of venture startup relationship, I think it has the potential of being much more of kind of in, looking more like a CVC, right? The VCs turn into CVCs in some respect where there's general kind of abilities to embed technologies and make these companies more valuable, um, to have kind of a deeper influence. Um, and it's not about check size. It's really about how do you get shit done 
when you have the capital um, and you have the team you need. Uh, I, I look at it all the time and it's like one of the biggest pain points I see is like anybody can write a check. That's great. And then the, the, the startup can go out and go make a bunch of just absolutely awful hires. Right. And it's like, well, I could just basically take that money, put it in a brown paper bag and burn it. And it'll be just as effective. Right. Um, you know, it's the same amount of dilution. I, I feel that there is an opportunity for VCs in many cases to be much more hands-on in the growth and the development of these companies. Um, and there are a lot of models, I think, that, that will come into focus, right, in the next two to three to five years in which the VC is not just seen as a funding engine, but it's seen as kind of part of the operational kind of excellence of these startups. Um, and that there's more skin in the game, um, there's more sweat, there's more kind of hard work than just a, an occasional intro um, or kind of a, a check-in call every quarter. Yeah, yeah. And funny thing I wanted to get back to about Sports Tech Tokyo also is, to me, there's really the US market, quick decision, easier for, for, for a startup to really move fast and, and, and take different boxes of you know, delivering important clients, getting the first contracts on the table, having a chance of making your product work. In Europe, the, you know, the, the level of effort that's needed to actually have a contract down and the speed at which you can develop your business is definitely much slower. And my personal experience on Asia is that, as you were saying, it's very much a relationship industry where the decision process takes a lot of time. Did you genuinely manage to accelerate the process for some of those startups in Asia? Like, did your organization manage to accelerate that decision process? Yeah, I think the short answer is I hope so. And I think there are enough data points out there as far as POCs that were established through the program itself to really say definitively yes. Um, you know, anytime you're dealing with 159 companies, it's not all going to be balloons and streamers, right? They're going to be um, some companies that just, you know, not to say that there's anything wrong with them, but it's just not the right time. It's not the right fit. Fill in the blank, right? Um, anybody can blame things like COVID, Olympic cancellation, blah, 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 right? Uh, I, I don't really operate on excuses. The, the reality is I think we did establish some really strong ties there, but I think we did two other really meaningful things that sometimes get lost in the shuffle. Number one, we kind of, in many respects, I go back to this, we redefine kind of what an accelerator can look like. Um, I think the biggest challenge we had with Sports Tech Tokyo when we were out there recruiting companies, and you know, I still see it today a little bit in food tech and smart city, is that everybody's first data point is, oh, this is just an accelerator. And, and it's not. And, and I think in many respects, this is much more of a biz dev and network expansion relationship centric experience that speaks to Japan, but it also touches on so many other kind of key decision makers and thought leaders in the industry itself. And I think this has been just fundamentally lacking, right? I mean, there are great sports tech accelerators out there. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, you have Stadia, you have Techstars, you have um, Lead, you have all of these other organizations that have kind of global notoriety. Our goal when we, when we started Sports Tech Tokyo was never to be seen as competition to those you know, existing entities. In many respects, we wanted to use them and partner with them um, for, for kind of deal flow. I mean, I think when I look at the, the Sports Tech Tokyo roster, I think 10% of those 
you know, 159 or 16 companies came out of Stadia, right? So these are graduates that are looking to accelerate their business in different capacities. It's not the blocking and tackling that Stadia provides. It's just fundamentally different yeah. as far as our focus is concerned. Um, and I think that that was really refreshing to a lot of startups. So yes, you can look at how many relationships did you establish in Japan as the definitive like thumbs up, thumbs down in the program. But I think what, again, what gets lost here is that we were bringing audiences together within this kind of startup ecosystem, sports tech specifically in the case of sports tech Tokyo that would never have had the conversations with one another, right? And we saw relationships unfold between those companies in many times um, because, in, you know, very rarely would you see, a, you know, a pre-revenue or a C early seed stage company ever in the same room with a company who had raised 25 or 30 million, right? And being able to have that layer of connectivity, um, incredible, right? Never before would you have over 100 um, industry thought leaders or mentors coming together, many of whom, by the way, had zero expertise in Japan, but looked at this and said, well, wait a minute, this is not my classic mentorship kind of role of you need to give me two hours a week and you need to do this and you need to do that. We basically said to all of our, our kind of members of our leadership circle or mentor community, hey, listen, you can engage as literally or as much as you want. Personally, I think you're going to want to engage, right? Because we're assembling such a strong, comp, you know, uh, I would say, you know, assortment of, of startups. Um, and in many respects, our, our whole goal with the leadership circle or mentors was to provide the same amount of value that we provided to our, our corporate partners. We want to help them kind of essentially do their day jobs. We want to help connect them. And whether they were members of teams, leagues, or properties, whether they came from the venture community, whether they came from the corporate side, we felt that this was going to be a value add for them and for their organizations. And that's how we were able to attract really strong candidates. Um, again, I think my, the first goal when we establish things is not to do what everybody else does, okay? Um, <laughs> I know it's kind of the contrarian approach. I'm not the rebel here. The fundamental thing is there's fatigue and, you know, differentiation and solving real problems that doesn't happen when you just try to replicate it with a slightly different, you know, font and, 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 you know, program name, you have to be solving problems. You have to be looking more broadly and you have to be trying to identify the inefficiencies for all stakeholders. Yeah. Interesting. And so having done that, you moved to smart city X, and I believe there's no upcoming promotion of Sports Tech Tokyo, right, for the time being. Um, yeah, so I'll touch on that real quick before we get into Smart City. So, uh, you know, we concluded the STT year one program in, in uh, fall of, of 2019. And I think like a lot of things, right, uh, you know, we had ambitious plans for, for 2020. And, and obviously those plans um, pretty much fell apart by March, um, you know, like the world did, I guess. Uh, you know, the Olympic postponement certainly did not help um, anybody's cause on that front. And, you know, I think the other thing is this, is that you can go on and say, hey, listen, I'm going to just plow through. Like, I'm, I'm going to just do this to do it, right? Our belief is the world has fundamentally changed, particularly in sports, right? I mean, talk about one of the industries that has been the most impacted by COVID, Um you know, there is no kind of work from home model when you're a professional sports team, 
And, and so with that in mind, we knew that obviously these companies obviously need support, but we can support them in different ways. We don't have to run a structured program, right? We don't have to say that we have all the answers because in many respects, we're kind of building the plane as we're looking to fly it. And so our belief was, let's push the pause button. Let's continue to support the, the startups. Let's continue to connect with our partners. Let's kind of wait for some of the dust to settle in terms of what's happening and then look to revisit it. And in parallel, right, because we're tech agnostic, because we're not just looking at sports, let's look at other industries, right, that are being impacted, that are being disrupted by COVID. There's a lot of kind of crossover in many respects between sports, smart cities, as you can probably imagine, right? Um, when you look at the actual verticals, when you look at, you know, food and food tech, as well as nutrition and, and sport. So where are those adjacency opportunities and ones that speak to kind of more macro level audiences? Um, and also a, a, another kind of, uh, I would say, um, aspect of, of the corporate community in Japan. Um, and so smart city, we started identifying that way before COVID um, as a growth opportunity. In fact, in parallel to kind of Sports Tech Tokyo ending, that's when some of those initial conversations with Sports, Smart City X really started to materialize with some of our, our now partners. Um, we kind of got to that February kind of point where it was like, we're moving forward. We've got a few partners in place. And then, of course, you know, the world falls apart. And at that point, two things could have happened. One, obviously, everyone could have said, let's just push the pause button and reset. But I think that was a kind of an inflection point in which we said, no, this is actually the time we need to accelerate here. I mean, look at our urban you know, markets around the world. They're falling apart. People are, are fleeing cities. Um, you, know, you have massive issues, whether it be in mobility, um, whether it be in housing, whether it be in healthcare. Um, we need to kind of put a stake in the ground and kind of own this time. And so this then became kind of more of a, a, a COVID-related initiative um, that, that looked to address some of the kind of more um, substantial um, shortcomings or inefficiencies that were exposed. And then, of course, you know, in other areas of the world, particularly here in North America, um, with, you know, a lot of the social unrest that, that occurred in the spring, um, we, we took a step back as well and said, hey, listen, how does that impact this program and kind of what we're thinking about? What is, what is the meaning of social innovation? What is the meaning of a smart city for that matter, right? Um, you know, in, in, in so many different ways, Sam, like, a smart city is, is really about technologies that make people's lives better and make cities more equitable and diverse and inclusive and things that fundamentally the Black Lives Matter movement and so many other kind of social movements, that's really the, the overall mission. So I think we really tried to redefine um, where the interests were both kind of on a global or macro level, along with the interests of our partners, which were very much tied together. And that's where, you know, we launched the program in, in August with, with that in mind. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure also some of the sports tech organizations that you have been following do make sense for that Smart City X because that's also about uh, uh, eco-friendly transportation and different ways of approaching the city and also about the health of people in those general cities. How many organizations have you managed to bring along or at least give a lot of interest in exploring their technologies uh, adapted to other environments. I always look at startups as saying, okay, a lot of people focus on sport. It's great because it's a difficult industry. And if you make it out, the potential for you to expand beyond sports is massive. 
So I always like sports organizations that have a potential way beyond sports. How, what, what was your feedback on that? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, you know, this is just my personal feeling, right. Is that some people would say sports is a very underinvested kind of category, so to speak, when you compare it to other industries. Um, I hate to say it, but there's a reason for that. Right. I mean, it's, it's really challenging to look at, you know, really, really good exits um, in sports in comparison to other verticals. Um, I think the companies that are exiting, right, as you said, they have diverse revenue streams. They're addressing problems outside of the vertical. And so when I look at sport and, and sports tech, um, my first question for a lot of these founders is kind of talk to me about the broader vision here. Are you just trying to be, you know, a sensor on a bat that addresses, you know, baseball? Or are you trying to solve a, a, a more scalable problem? Um, Beyond that, I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a company that gets, you know, acquired for 20 or 50 or 100 million bucks, right? But, you know, the venture game is, I hate to say it, that's that's like a bunt single, right? Um, you want to hit a home run, um, you know, you got to be looking kind of more unicorn-ish. And, you know, that's just, that's just a fundamental kind of venture type of approach. Um, so I think in many respects, companies should be looking at sport in many respects to address inefficiencies in that space. Look, it's sexy. It's high profile. It gets a lot of eyeballs. There's no question about it, but let's call it what it is. It's a marketing channel for a lot of companies more so than it is a primary revenue driver. And I think, you know, when you look at some of the companies that we've brought in to the smart city X program, um, you know, what's, what's kind of interesting is we, we had a, an early acceptance similar to sports tech Tokyo last month, where we, we accepted 18 companies. Um, those 18 companies, by the way, have raised, I think, a combined almost $300 million um, that are very mature in some respects, but also have diverse revenue, right? I mean, we have a company that um, does biometric kind of facial payments. Now, you could say that's a sports tech company because the venue of the future, it's cashless, it's contactless, right? And where does biometric play a role in that experience? But at the same time, that's just as relevant to QSRs when I go in and order my, my hamburger or my, you know, McChicken sandwich, right? And so I think those are good examples of companies that, you know, have real world application outside of sport, but then can kind of infuse their technology into those types of settings to add a little bit more kind of oomph or marketing muscle. Um, and so one of the kind of core areas that we're always looking for, again, diverse revenue streams. If you're a start, if you're a founder and you're just trying to get started, I'm not advocating that you, you know, you're all over the map and you're scattered. I think what is important is you're focused. You understand how to kind of validate and prove certain, um, uh, areas of the, the business, the product itself, but to have a much more broader kind of vision, um, for what that kind of land and expand um, roadmap looks like, um, it, it, you know, again, nothing wrong with sports. Don't get me wrong there, but I don't see a lot of really strong unicorn esque opportunities developing in this industry, unless they're able to uh, transcend into other verticals. So it's funny, your take actually, and that's because in Europe, there's very much that, dy that dynamic that there might be too many sports startup the other way around, you're saying as a VC that sport is underexploited, but it's probably because just the potential of it isn't 
interesting well, enough for these. It, it's fundamentally dysfunctional. I mean, when you when you boil down to it, right? Yeah. It, look at sport and then tell me how many teams, leagues, and properties are publicly traded or have greater levels of accountability, right? I, I think you can count on maybe two hands the number of organizations that have public ownership. And I think that's a really interesting data point to look at because in many cases, as you know, you, when you start going down the path of, of selling into that audience of teams, leagues, and properties with very little public accountability, right, you get employees that their legacy they don't think innovatively. They're not being pushed necessarily by real shareholders, right? Um, they're being propped up by operating losses that are then made up through these massive media, you know, rev shares, right? And, and so it just became okay. Like, tell me another industry where it's okay to lose 10 or $20 million on an annual basis and continue to get promoted and, and even have a job, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, that fundamentally has been a lot of teams, leagues, and properties. Not so much on the property side, but, but certainly at the team level. Teams are not necessarily profitable operationally. Where they make their money is on these national media agreements, right? And so the reality is they've been trained to, uh, you know, pay cents on the dollar for really good technology. They've been trained to have these enormous sales cycles that are absolutely, you know, they, they, they kill anybody in the startup space, right? And, and what are you chasing? Like you're chasing, you, you know, again, like, you know, something that doesn't scale if you're a startup. Do so actually, do you actually think that it, it is going to shift because the number of us out there that have that impression that they're just slow machines, do you think that is this is going to change Or do you think it will necessarily change at too slow of a pace because of the nature of sports itself, where it is necessarily the unicorn of a broadcaster because they buy those rights to really do the marketing shiny stuff, knowing that they will lose money. So, or do you feel like just the sports industry is condemned to not be able to advance at a fast enough pace? I think there's so many different kind of aspects behind sports, right? There's, there's the media side, there's the, the, the kind of operational side at, at, at the, the team and league and property level. Right. And, you know, it's not like these organizations are killing it right now, right? They're laying people off. Um, you know, look at the Dodgers yesterday. They just won the world series and they just cut a bunch of people. And, and they, it's because they lost a hundred million bucks this year and it's not going to get better next year. Um, you know, projected losses are, are, you know, very, very substantial. So when you start thinking about this from a startup lens, you're like, worst possible time to be selling into a notoriously cheap client, right? Somebody who's has budget slashed, who's cutting employees. I, I, I just don't see a lot of really strong upside there for a startup. Now, if you can broaden that approach, if you can speak to kind of those industries or those organizations that see tailwinds. Like we have a portfolio company as well, you know, that, that has absolutely killed it over COVID and they work with sports and entertainment clients, but guess what? They're not doing it in a traditional way. They're, 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 they're being part of the solution instead of kind of, I would say more or less the status quo. Um, and, and so it's, it's really interesting to kind of see the shift. Is that sustainable? Number one. And then number two, like, 
you know, this, this, this portfolio company I was talking to told me the other day, it's like, I hate to say it, Michael, like, I don't need to spend my time talking to a team for a very, very low margin deal when I can get, you know, 10 X by talking to somebody that's not, you know, directly in the industry. Right. So it, you know, you're starting to see that more and more, which I think is a healthy thing. And maybe that's the big kick in the butt. These teams need to realize um, you either have to outsource the tech um, or get with the times, but the days of just, you know, relying on fiscal, you know, budgets and annualize this and, you know, penny pinching, it's got to stop. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting one because from a European perspective, because our audience is very European. It's funny because we see Europe as being that and the U S being the forward thinking fast movers that are closer to a more sane economy. Um, And actually that's one thing then, were you feeling that when you were at Coca-Cola and when you were in the NBA, like, is it that that made you go away from those organizations, like slow paced, not forward thinking enough, like you weren't seeing the change that you wanted to bring upon the industry? Well, I, I, in Coke, I mean, geez, my eyes were like super wide, right? I mean, it was like my first job and, and you know, I probably didn't know my ass from my elbow, which is very clear at that <laughs> point, right? Yeah. Um, I was just trying to soak up a lot of the folks around me. because I mean, you talk about people who run circles around you. I mean, I've made a career of just watching people do that, but in Coke in particular, um, those, those folks are just extremely polished. And, and so I think for me, just kind of having that learning, seeing how they engage, how they interact, I got to tell you, like, it, it seems like, oh, like total dream job, which it was by the way, to work in sports and entertainment at Coke, but it wasn't about the NBA, FIFA or the IOC it was about selling carbonated soft drinks or isotonics or waters, right? Like there was like a real kind of goal here in mind, right? Um, We used sport and entertainment certainly to kind of execute against those visions. And so I look at it the same way. It's like, you know, if Coke thought of themselves as a sports marketing company, like we would, we wouldn't be drinking the product anymore. I'll tell you that because it wouldn't be there. But, um, and so I, you know, I think, it was just a lot of learnings, just kind of understanding kind of fundamentals of business and, and fundamentals, right. That, that unfortunately I, I don't think necessarily translate over sometimes into to certain sports uh, mentalities. But when I was at the NBA, right. I mean, I think one of the things that, that I always saw a very unique perspective because it's very different than a team, as you know, it's like you have the league and the league is able to market the, the, the brand on a global level. Whereas if you work for the, you know, Indiana Pacers, right. You're, you're kind of more sucked into that, you know, little radius around the city itself. And you're, you're trying to, you know, um, sell into that particular market. Um, and so, uh, you know, what that exposed to me is that the thing that I got really excited about at the NBA was the global growth of the property. And I think when I got there, you know, overall revenue, if you strip out the, the media agreements with, with Turner and, and, and Disney ESPN, um, it, it was like, it was definitely heavily skewed, of course, domestically. Um, international was kind of, you know, a, a, a distant second, obviously, in that, in that equation. And, but at the same time, you kind of saw the writing on the wall, right? You had... I think when, you know, when I was there, we had something like 70 some international players representing 40 some countries. 
And just the way in which the property or the brand itself was perceived in places like in Argentina with Manu Ginobili or Dirk Nowitzki in Germany or, or Tony Parker in, in France and, and, you know, of course, Yao Ming in China, that was really, that was like adrenaline rush, right? I mean, that's like fundamentally different audience, different kind of persona than you look at it domestically. And, you know, it's grown tremendously domestically. Like, you know, you can thank people like Kobe and, and LeBron and others for, for what that, that, that league has been able to achieve here in the last 15, 20 years. Certainly, you know, Adam Silver is a genius um, as well. But the, the reality is, I think the global story was just, in, it was in its infancy, right? I mean, we're talking like preseason, if you want to put it in sports terms. And to see the growth there has been really kind of, that's been the thing that it, it, it's gotten me the most excited about the league. And so I think the other thing that that, that kind of taught me is you, you can kind of take that, that blank canvas approach in general, right? I mean, like my job with China was like, you know, we've got kind of an idea of what we want to do or in this growth market, we got an idea, but, but at the end of the day, this is a blank piece of paper. Um, we have to go kind of create a strategy and then we have to go execute against it. And that's, essentially what startups are, right? I mean, it's, it is a blank piece of paper. It's about looking at kind of where the wind is blowing and then saying to yourself, how are we going to get to the right place? And so I, I think that four plus years in New York working at the league, you know, it wasn't, as I said, all balloons and streamers, right? I mean, like, sounds like a great job and it was, yeah. um, but it's, it, it's not an easy job. And, and um, you know, it taught me a lot of things about kind of both how to manage people um, it, it taught me how to best identify opportunities. And, and more importantly, I have a sick network of former colleagues that have gone on to just incredible positions um, around the world, for that matter. Um, and I'm just really fortunate to be part of that alumni group. Now, um, you know, I think I, I hit that kind of personal inflection point at that point where it was like, hey, listen, do you go back to school? Do you go join a big corporate? And I'm like, you know, I don't think that's me. I mean, me is kind of like, how do I make the biggest impact I possibly can? And I just started maybe kind of, you know, before it was cool in investing in that network. Um, and I'm not saying I was like an early adopter of LinkedIn or something like that. But like, the reality is I probably spend more time on LinkedIn than, than I probably should, um, which is probably why I don't spend any time on Facebook. Um, is that to me, like, the number one piece of IP that, that has enabled me to, to kind of do what I do is the network. It's, it's not because of my brains. I mean, as I said, I ride a lot of coattails and there are a lot of people that run circles around me. I think where I certainly over index is, is my ability to get shit done based on relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a funny one because it's also, it's about having this, those relationships, but it's also how to empower them. And I'm in that very much, teaching mode because I, I I was with students earlier today and it was fun to actually deep dive into that again. Um, and, and one thing that is, if you had one piece of advice and because we have to wrap it up because we had 15 more questions that we could have tackled, but uh, it, it, we often deep dive into to on topics, which is much more exciting. Um, from your perspective, taking putting back on your VC hat, what do you look for in an organization to work? You said sports is great, but your vision needs to be bigger because the sports industry will only take you that far. What are you looking for 
in a product and what are you looking for in the people that uh, carry the product? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I, I think anytime you look, uh, we look at, you know, high growth industries, we look at great management teams, people who are seasoned entrepreneurs in some, in most cases um, that have track records of success and, and, and then certainly reasonable valuations. I think that's the kind of classic answer, right? So I'll give you kind of my interpretation of that as well. Um, I think number one, it's got to be an an idea and a product that you can't just have one beneficiary of, right? I think when, when we designed Option It, for example, our thought was, how do you provide fans more enhanced convenience and flexibility? Because that's what they wanted. Nobody wanted to buy a season ticket and be locked into a particular date at a, a, a certain time. And people still don't want that today. At the same time, you have to be thinking about everybody else. And you cannot be one-dimensional, even if your customer or client base is one of those audiences, right? And so the, the other audience we had was, was teams and leagues and properties, and it was an incremental revenue uh, enhancement, right? And it was done with other relationships in mind. So I think, number one, it's, under, it, it's, it, it's empathy. <laughs> like, I know that seems like a really overused term. You sound like Gary V right now. Oh, geez. I mean, we're, you know, you want to, you know, you know, go hug it out. That's fine. But like, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's not, you can define empathy in so many different fashions. This is about being empathetic around your customer base. And I think so many times in sports, there's just this amount of arrogance. I hate to say it, that drowns out empathy. And, and, you know, I think whether you're, a founder that's developing a sports tech product or, or, or outside this industry, you have to be empathetic about all audiences. And what is the thing that is going to be their biggest pain point? What's going to be their barrier? Um, and that's again, precisely how we design our programs with, with the studio, right? In mind, we, we, we certainly think about our corporate partners in Japan, but that's not a one-way street. It's not like we're taking 99% of our influence from them. Like at the end of the day, the IP that makes these programs work, yes, our corporate partners play a huge role in that. But if we don't have the right startups and we don't have the right members of this leadership circle or mentor community, these programs don't exist, right? So the reality is it's a very kind of push and pull. And and I think you need to be extremely understanding of those audiences. Um, that, That to me is the bottom line. Second is... You know, you need to be addressing real problems and real pain points. Um, Somebody at the NBA always used to tell me, um, you know, ideas find money. And it's so true, right? Is is ideas find money, but but good ideas, ones that actually impact people's lives and make them better, find even more money. Um, and, And so, you know, that's kind of that second piece. And then the third piece, you know, I hate to say it, but it's just, it's relationships. And, and, and I know that sounds so cliche and so overused, but like if you are kind of, you know, lukewarm on, on a certain industry because you're, you don't have the right relationships, well, go find somebody else who does. Um, because at the end of the day, that does matter. Um, you know, I just, I can't overemphasize that enough. And, and so we try to infuse the value from our relationships and many times into um, our portfolio and the other companies that we support. So that's how I look at it. I know that's, you know, I hate being on a soapbox. That's not my, my, my space, but, uh, but so, it, no, but it's, I mean, I, one thing I have to agree with you is so much of it is not rocket science. 
You have, no. to, you have to come up with a good idea. <laughs> if this idiot right here can go figure it out, right? I mean, it just shows that like we, we, we're, you know, we're in pretty good, we're trending the right way. But, um, you know, the, yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the line, it, you, can, you can compensate for intelligence in a lot of different ways, okay? And, and there are different forms of intelligence. Um, and you're absolutely right, 100%. Um, you know, there's not a, a particular kind of playbook for an entrepreneur, as you know. Yeah. Michael, look, amazing. Thanks a lot for your time. We're really happy that you accepted our invitation there. There are a lot of great takeaways. I loved how you talk bluntly about certain realities of the sports ecosystem because we're all in it. And, you know, it's an important notion to know that some things are dysfunctional, even though we're still in it. That means we, you know, our passion is still driving us to try to bring that little bit of change into it. Um, so th thank you very much for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, hopefully this isn't uh, 60 minutes of people's lives they're never going to get back. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Michael. Um, thanks, everyone. Hope you appreciated it as much as we still love doing our little corner episodes. Um, as you know, this is our new international channel. So if you can go on the ratings and go on Spotify, Apple, give us good grades if you're enjoying it. Um, we love the support. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon. Le Corner.